Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. Now, you know where we're at this morning. We're in Colossians chapter 1, and we are finishing up the first chapter of Colossians. We're going to be in verses 24 through 29 this morning. And as you flip there, we'll go ahead and prepare your minds for what is to come. Many of you have worked a job in your life, right? You've had a job before, or you currently work somewhere, uh, whenever you started that job or whatever job you've held in, in the past, you were undoubtedly, undoubtedly given a piece of paper known as your job description, right? You're familiar with the job description. This is what we expect of you as an employee of this company is to do XYZ uh, through ABC back through XYZ. And there's always a caveat in there that says, now this is not all we expect of you. But you certainly can do no less than these things, right? If you're a janitor, your job description is you better clean things. You might be expected to do more than just clean, but you better at least clean some stuff, right? So we're all familiar with what a job description is. And in this section of Scripture, we're going to look at what essentially serves as the job description of a minister of God. There's a story of a, a man who one time was speaking with a preacher, and this guy was a, a farmer, hard-working farmer, and it's in the middle of him stripping cotton, and so he's working, you know, night and day, tirelessly, seven days a week, and he's having a conversation with the preacher. He says, you know, preacher man, I sure do envy you. You have it easy. You just have to work one day a week, and you work for 30 minutes on Sunday." You got plenty of time to go play golf. You got plenty of time to go hang out at the beach or by the pool. I sure envy you as a man who had no idea what goes into being a preacher or a pastor. But then on the flip side, there's also many ministers and many congregants who, who don't understand what goes into being a minister or what's required of a minister of God. And unfortunately, we see that all too often from the ministers themselves, that they, they don't understand what the Word of God requires of them. And this morning, we will see that through this passage, that Paul knows very well what is expected of him. And as he goes on to explain what it is that he does, we will see that this serves as a template for other ministers. So for you in here this morning, maybe you have sensed a calling Maybe you have wondered what it is that a, a minister is supposed to do. Either way, this will serve to show you what it is that is expected by God of his ministers. And we'll see that Paul wants the Colossians to know that he is very happy to suffer for their sake. Because he knows that he is fulfilling his God-given ministry of leading them to maturity in Christ. Let's stand and let's read Colossians 1, 24 through 29. 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you be with us in this place this morning. God, I ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful and beautiful things in your word that we have not known before. God, I pray that you would use me just as a vessel this morning, Lord, that I would make the word of God fully known, that I would not preach or deliver this message out of some sort of selfish ambition, but solely for the glory of Christ to make the word of God fully known for the good of your church this morning, Lord. I pray that you will send your word forth in power by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. So as I said a bit ago, this passage is going to serve as a sort of a template for a minister of God. And from this, we will be gleaning um, six commissions of a Christ-centered minister. We're going to look at six commissions of a Christ-centered minister from this text. Now, I'll preface this by saying these are not in order of importance, okay? I did not rank these because I didn't come up with them. We're just going to look at them in the order that they're presented in the text, and that's the order that we're going to read them in, okay? So Paul is opening up uh, by talking about suffering, So our first point for our first commission of a Christ-centered minister is that he must be prepared to suffer well. As, As Paul opens up this section, this is a staggering statement that he makes. Look at it. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Think about that for a moment. You know, we, we have it different today. We have it backwards today. Today we say for, to people, whenever we're counseling someone who is suffering or when we are being counseled, we say, you know, one day you're going to look back on this and you're going to rejoice at what God has done for you. But what Paul is saying is, no, right now, in the middle of my suffering, I rejoice And that word rejoice doesn't just mean that I I power through it or that I grin and bear it. It means I rejoice in my suffering. Paul is setting the standard, not just for ministers, but for Christian living. Paul knows 
He knows to the very core of who he is that this life is not his. And that nothing that happens to him is about him or for him. It is for the good of the church and for the glory of God. And it is with that understanding that he is able to say, I rejoice in my sufferings. Now that's not to imply that he's saying it's easy. Or that he's saying you should just laugh and turn the blind eye to your sufferings and pretend like it's not there. No, instead he's owning it because he knows that his suffering's not in vain. As we read in Philippians, it's also it's another prison epistle just as the book of Colossians is. And Paul is saying in Philippians 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has only served to advance the gospel. Paul knows that my life is not for me. My life is for Christ. He says to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. And in doing so, he sets the standard for us. He shows us the example of what it means to truly live for Christ. Is that in the midst of our suffering, that we would have such a high view of who God is, that we can, in the middle of our suffering, rejoice. Because we know that at that moment, this is working something in me. It hurts, and it's hard, and this is almost unbearable, but I know that God is working all things for my good. And I know he didn't bring me this far to bail on me and just to leave me. So I rejoice in my suffering, in the middle of it. This is such a challenging statement. It is so hard to grasp this, isn't it? Because we live in America. And suffering is the opposite of what anybody wants to go through. Our lives are geared towards and focused on comfort. How do you know that? Because we sell $15,000 mattresses in this country. And there's people sleeping on concrete in other countries. And we sell $15,000 mattresses. We have seventy and eighty dollars and $100,000 vehicles. Our lives are geared for comfort, but the Christian life is geared for suffering. Because through suffering, God can mold you into the image of his Son, which is the end goal for every Christian. There's this pastor, his name is Matt Chandler. He has this church known as the Village Church in Flower Mound. And he exhibited what it is to suffer well. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Thought he was going to die. And he has a family. This was just in the middle of his church really exploding and taking off. He passed out one day and woke up in the hospital and came to find out that he has his brain tumor. And he was very unsure of what was to come. Am I going to die? Death was a real possibility for him. At best, what they had hoped for was that he would lose his spatial reasoning. What that is, is, is the brain's ability to look at something and consider it from different angles. Which, guess what? That's what you do as a preacher. So he's sitting there facing this immense suffering with little children in his home, with this wife that he loves dearly, with this church God has entrusted him with. And what did he do? He suffered publicly and suffered well. 
He now is cancer-free for the moment, but he doesn't know that there is still a possibility that it comes back. But his ministry is built on teaching people how to suffer well. There's a Christian apologist known as Nabil Qureshi. He suffered publicly and suffered well for the cause of Christ, videotaping, videotaping, how old am I? He recorded everything, every step of the process, all the way up until the day that he was in the hospital, and he's in his gown, and he's recording this video himself, and he's saying, I just got the news from the doctor that there's nothing else they can do for me. They're going to just let it go. The cancer is going to take my life. And this man, in front of everyone, prays and cries and says, God, you know what? I know that even now you could save me. But even if you don't, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what it is to suffer well. And as a minister of the word of God, it is our duty, it's my duty, that when that comes for me, that I set the example of what it means to walk through suffering, rejoicing, because great is our hope. This freedom comes from knowing Christ. It comes from knowing him deeply and intimately and personally. And see, he knows this. He knows that this suffering is hard. In the second half of that verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 24, he says, I am filling up in my flesh, in my body. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. In my flesh, I'm filling up the afflictions of Christ. Now, before we kind of unpack this, let us understand, because this is another really challenging statement. I mean, what is Paul saying? Is he saying that Christ didn't suffer enough? Is he saying that Christ still, he only suffered 75% of what he needed to suffer? No, we know that's not true because of what we learned last week, that Christ's sacrifice was perfect. His suffering was perfect. His blood was sufficient enough to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what Paul is referring to is saying that since he is a member of the body of Christ, Christ being the head, Paul knows that he must suffer as Christ suffered. I have several different verses here that show us that the, the Bible prepares Christians for suffering. So I'm just going to read these to you. If you want to write them down or reference them later, feel free. But in Acts 5.41, Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles had just been beaten by the council for preaching the word of God, and as they left, they rejoiced in their suffering because they had the opportunity to suffer for the name of Christ. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Here the apostles are encouraging the believers. And this is just the regular believers, not missionaries, not evangelists, not other preachers or elders. This is just the Christians, the believers in the church. They're encouraging them 
telling them that it is by many tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom of God. We must enter into the kingdom of God by many tribulations. That's Acts 14.22. 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, you will be persecuted for wanting to live a godly life. Anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. That was 2 Timothy 3.12. John 16.33. You know this one. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. It will happen. It's going to come. That's John 16.33. And then in 1 Peter 4, 12-13, he says, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked when you have to suffer but instead rejoice so that we can be overjoyed when Christ returns. Suffering is decreed by God for every single Christian. Why? Because this is how he molds us into the image of his son. And as ministers... We must be prepared to be on the front lines of suffering and suffering well. The second commission that we see from this text is the commission that you must be called of God. Ministry is not a career choice. Paul says that he can suffer well here because he knows that he is called by God. He knows that this is for a purpose. So let's look at it here. He says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which, that's verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. He knows that he was called of God. And he knows that this suffering is part of it. Without a true calling of God, ministers will fall away. We see it time and time and again. Ministers who get into ministry just because they think, oh, well, you know, I've tried a lot of different things. Let me try ministry. I think I would be good at it. And we treat it as though it were a career choice. And what ends up happening is that that minister hurts himself and hurts a lot of other people too. Because ministry is a call of God. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, If he cannot help it, and he must preach or die, then he is the man. Not the man, like, oh, he's the man, but he's, he's the right Person, He's someone who has been called of God. If he must preach or die. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That is someone who is called of God into the ministry He knows I don't have a a way or a reason or a right to boast about my position because necessity is laid upon me. I must do this. 
I must preach the gospel. And for those of you in here who might be considering a move into the ministry, that must mark your life. That must mark my life. That if I don't do this, there's nothing else I can do. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And you see, this has the opposite effect of what you would think. Preaching, a lot of people look at it as this high and lofty and glamorous even sometimes position because we live in the era of the celebrity pastor. But whenever you understand that you are called of God, you know you have no right to boast. I can't brag about what I do because God has put me here. Necessity is laid upon me. But I also know that in my calling, and this is true of any other minister, is that it's not for me. It is for the good of the church. Let's read it here. He says that. Let's look at verse 25 again. Of which I became a minister. And he's talking about the church. According to the stewardship from God. That's his calling. That was given to me for you. Paul is saying, this is my calling, but my calling is for your benefit. I am here to serve the body. That's what Paul is saying, and that's what enables him to suffer well, is because he knows that this is part of the job description. It is Paul's calling, but it is for their good. It is the minister's calling, but it is for the good of the church. Now, we have a lot of preachers and pastors who have this wrong. And they think that preaching is to make a name for themselves and to, to be known. And I want my name on the front of the church and I want my picture on the front of everything because they think that this is for themselves. But it's not. It is for the good of the body, the church. It is for the glory of God. Now, whenever a, a preacher believes that, and they think that it is of themselves, they will ignore number three, which is to preach the full counsel of God. Let's look at 125, the second half of 125 through 27. He says, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. At the end of verse 25, he says it, to make the word of God fully known. Some of your translations might say to preach all of the Bible or to preach the, the full counsel of God. And that's why I summed it up this way is to preach the full counsel of God. As a Christ-centered minister, your duty, your job, my duty, my job, what I have been commissioned by God to do, is to preach all of this. That means if this says it, we're going to talk about it. We're going to cover it. We're going to discuss it. But that also means that you will inevitably offend some people. Because the word of God can be downright offensive. 
because we have a lot of our own ideas of how things work and how this world is supposed to work and what we think of God. And here is the word of God that flies right in the face of that and against it and says, no, you're wrong. This is what's true. And as a minister of the word of God, my responsibility is to show that, to show that in Scripture what the truth is, to hold up the Bible and say, this is what the Word of God says. Not to stand here and tell you a bunch of things that I think are cool or that I think are awesome or how I think you should live your life. My opinion is worth zero. Only God's Word matters here. And a Christ-centered minister is commissioned by God to make his whole entire word known, to preach it all. And guess what? That's why we're doing expository preaching. That's why we're going through book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because that is my duty, is to make the word of God fully known. It's not because I saw it somewhere and I thought it was really cool and I wanted to try it. It's because I know that my job is to make the word of God fully known. I'm tasked to do this. I must do this. Now, that's not to say that topical preaching is sinful or that it's wicked or that it's evil. It's not. And I hope I didn't give you that idea because we will hear from time to time, break it up and do some topical messages. But the difference is that whenever a minister only preaches that way, you get a fragmented view of who God is and what the Bible says because we're just hopping around and we're taking this verse here and that verse here and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So naturally, you don't get the full scope of what God is saying and who God is because you're not making the Word of God fully known. So that's why we're going in this direction. Now, a minister who does not understand that his ministry is not unto himself will not preach the full word of God. Why? Because I don't want to offend you. I, 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 want, my, I want to keep my job. I, I, want, I want to make a name for myself. He's not worried about making the word of God fully known. He's worried about making himself fully known. I want to make a name for myself. I want to, be, I want to speak at conferences. I want to write at books. I want people to quote me on Facebook. That's what the kind of minister who thinks that this is for them will be about. But Paul knows better than anyone and displays for us all that our ministry is for the church. We are put here for the good of the body, the church. But the danger, the real danger is to not preach the full counsel of God is to cut off the people from the hope of the gospel. Though a congregation may leave feeling really encouraged and really fired up and really excited, and man, you know what? Church was so good today. Pastor said this, this, and this, and this. Come Monday morning, it's fizzled out. Why? Because you were excited about what a man said, not what God said. Only God's word stands. That's it. You remember the verse from Isaiah, the flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord stands forever. 
make the word of God fully known and how beautiful this word is. Let's just take a moment and admire verses 26 and 27. He's talking about the word of God and he's saying the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Guess who the saints are? You. If you're a Christian, you are one of the saints. And this mystery that was hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed to you. Verse 27, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Church, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not just in the preacher, not just in the missionaries, not just in the evangelists. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You, this is personal, this is for you, not just for me. Do you see that? How beautiful this is. See, at one time, we are Gentiles. Anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. We are Gentiles. And at one time in human history, people like us could not know God. The promises to the Israelites were for the Israelites. But now, because of the amazing, incredible richness of the love of God, he has made a way for you and for me to know him personally. To have Christ within us. What a beautiful truth this is. And to not preach the full counsel of God is to cut people off from that hope. Because the hope of the gospel is in the word of truth. You remember that from the first part of Colossians 1. The word of truth. The gospel. That's where our hope is rooted in. We learned the past two weeks of the person and work of Christ that because he is God in the flesh and spotless and blameless, that his sacrifice successfully cleanses us of our sins. That because of who Christ is, his blood is so precious that it can cleanse even the most wretched, vile sinners to make them white as snow. That if you are in Christ, Christ is also in you. And you have the hope of glory. You have the hope that one day you will be with him in eternal bliss. That's for all of us. What a joy that is. What an absolute joy. And whenever you know that, whenever you hold fast to that, you can rejoice in suffering because you know that Christ is in me and he is the hope of my glory. He is the hope that one day this will all be worth it. So we rejoice. The question is this morning, do you have that hope? I would be remiss if I missed this opportunity to ask you, do you have that hope? Do you have Christ in you? 
have you called upon the name of the Lord and repented of your sins and put all of your trust in him? And if not, I implore you this morning, be reconciled to Christ. Come to him. There has never been a sinner so filthy that his, his blood can't cleanse you. Trust me, I'm one of them. But his blood is so mighty and so precious that it can take even the worst of the world, even the scum of the earth, and cleanse them and make them holy and righteous before God. That is the hope of the glory that you and I have. Next, we see that another commission is that we must proclaim Christ. That's from verse 28, part A. The very first part, he says, Him we proclaim. It is Christ who we proclaim. I do not stand here to offer you religion. I do not stand here to offer you morality. I stand here today to offer you Jesus Christ himself. It is an opportunity to know a person not to adhere to a certain list of standards and rules and regulations, but to know Jesus Christ himself. Him we proclaim. That is the fourth mark of the Christ-centered minister is he must proclaim Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and a folly to Gentiles. A Christ-centered minister will not cave to the whims and demands of the culture or society, but will instead stand firm on the word of God and proclaim Christ. A Christ-centered minister will preach the truth that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation and that one must repent of their sins and put all faith in Christ. A Christ-centered minister will not preach his own thoughts, opinions, or any other version of man-made wisdom. He will avoid human philosophy, tricks, schemes, and even cleverness if it means it will get in the way of people seeing Christ. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but Paul is talking a lot about Jesus. I mean a lot. From the very first section of Scripture, he starts talking about Jesus. The next section we studied, it was about Jesus. The next section that we studied was about the person and the supremacy of Jesus. The last section that we studied was about the work of Jesus. Now this section is about the work of the minister of Jesus. Church, all of this is about Jesus. It's all about him. It's not about us. It's not about our lives. It's not about what can we get from him. It's not about can we be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. It's can we know Jesus? And the answer to that question is yes. You absolutely can. And when we have him, we have the hope of glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that he didn't come to them preaching in persuasive language or lofty speech, but in fear and trembling because he did not want them to put their trust in anyone but God. 
That's why we do what we do here. That's why we're going this direction. It's because we're, I'm not here to entertain you. As much as I love to make people laugh, that's not my job. As much as I want these seats to be full, that's not my job. As much as I want for us all to just have a, a good old grand old time, my job is to proclaim Christ. And that's what I will do. Our fifth section is that you must admonish and teach the believers. And this is where it gets a little uncomfortable. That's 128b. He says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. My version says warning. Yours probably says admonishing. And what he's saying is that what we do, part of our ministry is to say, not like that, but like this. Or don't do that. You're headed towards a life full of danger and just depravity and sin. Turn from that and turn to Christ. My job is to warn you from impending danger, whether it be in your personal life or, or whatever else, and to teach you what it is that God's Word says about what it means to live a life unto God. I must admonish you and teach you. And this is part five. This word admonish that my Bible translates uh, warning sometimes can be used as rebuke. Church, that means that sometimes I'm going to have to say some things that make you mad at me. But understand, it is not just to hurt your feelings. My desire is not to make you mad or to make you angry towards me or to make you cry or to make you hurt. My job is to warn you that you're headed the wrong way. Turn. Seek Christ. Know Christ. That's my job. So in the future, as we move forward, I hope that you remember that in the moments where you leave here feeling a sting, that my job that I take seriously is to make the Word of God fully known and to warn you, but also to teach you, to teach you what it means to follow God, to teach you not what it means to be a good churchgoer, but what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a real disciple, not just an American churchgoer, but what it means to really know Jesus. That's my job. It's in my job description. I must do these things. And in order to make the word of God fully known, that's the only way for this to be accomplished. See, I could give you a lot of tricks, and I could give you a lot of pointers, and three steps to this, and four steps to that, but what good is that going to do you? Instead, I must open this word and tell you what it says, and it cuts me first. I hope you know that, that the messages, God deals with me first, before it ever deals with you. 
And such is how it should be with any minister. We have to take the word of God seriously because he doesn't take it lightly the way that we do. He doesn't play with sin the way that we do. He doesn't play with his glory the way that we do. We have to come to this seriously and reverently. I must warn and I must teach. But understand, this does not mean that we're going to be perfect. We'll never be perfect this side of glory. We're going to fail. We're going to stumble. Even me, I'll make mistakes. We're human. But the point is that we are all walking towards Christ-likeness. That we are being ever shaped and molded. And when we're wrong, that we say, you know what? I was wrong. God, forgive me. God, continue to work in me. Church, he will do that and he will use us if that is our mentality. And our last point, the point of all of this is number six, to produce mature Christians. You see it right there at the end of 28, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's why we're doing expository preaching. That's why we're studying the attributes of God. That's why we will do the things that we're going to do is so that we can present you mature in Christ. Not so we can have a really big church. Not so that we can have a huge following on Facebook or any of these things, but so that you can be mature in Christ. That is my job. In Ephesians 4, I encourage you to go read this. It's Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. I encourage you to go and read this. This is the mission of who God appoints to be the teachers and the preachers, is to present, to make you mature so that you are equipped to do the ministry of God. Not just do it myself. The point of the preachers and the teachers and the evangelists is to make the church body mature and equip you for the work of ministry. That's Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. I'll let you go read that at home. You see, many of us get saved. We learn about the don'ts of Christian morality, that what, that, and that's where we stop. We just know all the things we're not supposed to do. I'm not supposed to have sex outside of marriage. I'm not supposed to get drunk. I'm not supposed to do drugs. I'm not supposed to cuss. I'm not supposed to do this, this, that, and the other. And that's where our maturation process stops. And that's all that we know about being a Christian is just all the stuff you don't know you're not supposed to do. But that's not what it is to be a Christian. There's so much more than that. And as a minister, the job is to take the flock by the hand and lead them into the deeper things that they may mature and be equipped for ministry. That you know God for yourself that you know Christ for yourself, that you can go home and open up this Bible and read it and understand it for yourself. That is the job of a minister. The point of all of this is that the flock may know Christ and grow in him, not merely go to church and be consistent in church membership. 
A mature Christian is not one who has just been going to church for an extended period of time. A mature Christian is someone who is being shaped and molded into the image of Christ and growing in their knowledge of God. And that is my duty. That is the duty of any Christ-centered minister. And as Paul finishes out in 29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul reiterates to the Colossians that he is happy to suffer for their sake because he knows that his God-given ministry will produce mature Christians. And for us today, ministers must be willing to suffer well for the bride of Christ and work hard to produce mature Christians. This will be accomplished by the preaching of the full counsel of God, proclaiming the truth about Christ and admonishing and teaching the flock. And when we do God's work, God's way, God is glorified. Let's stand and pray. And we will pray and we'll be dismissed this morning. Gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, what, what rich treasures there are to be found in your word, Lord. How wise and how loving you are to put everything that we need for life and godliness in this Bible. God, I thank you for being so wise and so loving and so caring to design the ministry this way, Lord. God, and I pray that for the sake of this church, God, that you will make me a better minister. For the sake of this body, not for my own good, not for my own recognition, not for high fives or for glory of myself, but for the sake of this body, that this body may be presented to you in maturity in Christ for your glory, Lord. God, I pray that you'll continue to work in us through your word. Lord, that you will show us great and wonderful things as we study at home. Lord, I pray that you will give us all a hunger and a thirst to know more of you to know you more, to know you more deeply, more intimately, Lord. I pray that that will be what our week looks like this week, that we will seek you and that we will find you. Go with us and protect us, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Grace, peace, and mercy with you all.